Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Mischief Makers, your one-stop shop for all things mischief. Join your host, Dave Hearn, as he finds out what makes mischief, well, mischief. Right, we're starting now. Okay, okay, one sec, one sec, one sec. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Mischief Makers with me, Dave Hearn. Um, You might hear some crazy rustling going on in the background, um, and that's because I am with the wonderful Josh Elliott today, or should I say Dr. Josh Elliott. Uh, He wanted to get a jumper before we began because it's quite cold in his room. So I said, go off and get the jumper. I'll do the intro. And when you come back, hello, Josh. Hi. There he is. He's back in the room. Do you have a jumper on now? I've got a quite thick jumper, yeah. Very good. That is very good because uh, I suppose as a doctor, do you recommend, I don't know, could you medically prescribe a jumper? That'd be silly. Uh, That's step one of all of my medical reviews. Oh, they're wearing a jumper. No. Step one, jumper. Wear a jumper. Wear a thick knit jumper. Yeah. Just for the um, psychological benefits as well, I think. Do you you feel better psychologically if if you've got a good jumper on? Specifically a thick knit one. Yeah, I think so. Well, One of the, um, someone, uh, I can't remember who said it, during the Mischief Movie Night that uh, Romy just did, said that they like seeing the boys in the thick knits over, over, that sounds so raunchy. But... <laughs> I like the boys in their thick knits. <laughs> but uh, I like, I like the feel of a thick knit. Yeah, that's true. I've got a, I've got a sort of submariner's roll neck. I know the one, I've seen you in a thick knit, Dave, and it's I also very appreciate nice. you in a thick knit. I feel a bit like Hemingway. Huh? Yeah, I do because I've I, well, I've actually taken my jumper off before this uh, for fear of being oh, too David. hot. Yeah, so, I'll probably get too hot out of excitement. Now, are you all right to start? I mean, I, well, I appreciate we have started, but I, I it's not the most uh, settling way to begin because no. I just sort of sent you off running. Um, and but Let's have you start. settled now? Are you comfortable? Yeah, I'm worried about this ca- a little bit creak- creaky in this chair. That's all right. I'll just, just stay still. Give us a give us an example of the creak. That's that's it, subtle creek. It's not too bad actually. What's a not okay. not subtle creek? Uh, 
that was I knew that was what you were going to do. You were going to do yeah, math. I felt I felt like <laughs> math creek because you know that that's my uh, that's my go to. What mouth creek or mouth mouth comedy? creek? Mouth, well, I don't know mouth creek. I meant mouth creek. I was being silly, but maybe mouth comedy. Well, yeah. Well, uh, we've derailed already. Sorry. Um, no, no. This is fine. This is good. It's me. I'm I'm getting absorbed into jumper and mouth creek business. Now, Josh, welcome to the podcast. David Hearn, thank you. Um, you are a founding member of Mischief, amongst many other things. Um, Correct. There in the very, very early days back in, was it 2008 or 2007? Did it kind of start? It was 2008, wasn't it? Um, when was the first Edinburgh after the Lambda Foundation? It was 2008. Must have been, must have been 2008. Yeah. Um, who, I was trying of... to think before this, who was who was in that foundation year that is currently in it still? You, me, me, Henry Lewis, yeah. Harry Kershaw, Mike Bodie. Yeah, who else? I think that's it. Wow. Because Niall and Bri joined later. Rob joined later. Uh, Charlie and Jono, to be fair, joined like after that first Edinburgh run. It was like six months after. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty much of the... I mean, I guess, you know, if you're talking like comic book OG, yeah, then it's like the us five, I think. Yeah. We're the, um, the origin story, yeah. Yeah, and you can't get rid of Harry Kershaw. He's like a like a sort of a, a, a whelk. He's like a knot in an old oak. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Wise yeah. and embedded. Yeah, and he'll he'll tear up your chainsaw if you go at him. <laughs> yes, he will. Yes, he will. Uh, now, Josh, this this first section uh, we're going to go into. We're just going to get to know you a little bit, so that the fans of Mischief can get to know Josh Elliott. Um, and you might. Know this already? I'm sure you've mm. extensively st- studied the previous I do my research. that I've done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any jingles, and I know you're quite musically minded. So, could you just improvise a quick sort of three to five second sort of radio jingle titled "Getting to Know You"? Getting to know you. Welcome. Nice. That was quite like a staccato. I enjoyed it. Well, you know, just kind of mix it up a little bit. It was good. It was good. Well, there's going to be two more jingles, so keep. Oh my your, goodness. Um, yeah, keep your thinking cap on. I but I don't need to be distracted. No... no, I'll try not on, but that is a big, uh, that's a big sort of Damocles hanging over me now. Well, the other option is you can do the two jingles now, but then you'll need to remember them when we get there. Oh, that is, t- no, that's too much again. Yeah. I don't know, you, you call it. No, I, I think we'll, we'll do it as and when. I think cool. that'll be fun. Can um, I just so... say that I imagine marimbas in the back of that one, sort of like what's a, what's delicate. Sort of... Uh, it's like one of those, um, like a wooden xylophone. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. I used to play those in primary school. Yeah, with the I played soft the things. bass. Yeah, I was put on bass. Um, what's it called? Steel drum. When I was a kid at my primary school. Oh wow! So I'm rocking some Caribbean vibes. Yeah, I mean, you can't. You, you can take the Caribbean out of the boy. No, the other <laughs> way around. You you can take the boy. Have you ever been to the Caribbean? <laughs> no, but I did. <laughs> but I did go to. I did go to. Oh. No, you didn't hear that, did you? That was a, a thing on my computer. Um, I did go to a school that was very close to the walking path of the um, the uh, festival in... Um, sorry, I'm just trying to... Oh, the Notting Hill Festival. Notting Hill Festival, yeah. Oh, what's happening to your computer? I don't know, lots of emails suddenly coming in. All the very fans important. being like, uh, anticipating this, no doubt. So it's going out live. They know they're <laughs> messaging in. Um, so actually, yeah, let's let's stay on that then. Let's talk about uh, you. So you grew up in uh, West London, right? Correct. And you, we always because I know you you play quite a lot of music and instruments. So is that kind of 
how you got into the arts and that kind of background? So I think um, my mum was an artist and my mm. sister as well. Uh, my oldest, oldest of two sisters. And there's always like this sort of crafty, wacky energy around my house. We just also, all the art projects were just, uh, not just the thing itself, but all the materials that went into making that, that thing would just accumulate around. And so there's always mm. just like weird business, you know? And my sister, uh, older sister Freya would always encourage me to just be, just do whatever with her. She would use me like a sort of monkey stuntman, um, training dummy kind of thing. Yeah. And so um, you were doing like little plays and pieces as a, as a kid. Yeah. She, we used to like put on little puppet. I mean, my middle sister as well, used to put on like puppet shows. I think it's quite standard, isn't it? And, oh, um, yeah. Rock uh, and then yeah well yeah to the, you know to the neighbors although i yeah. think i was probably too young at some point and then i got de-invited unofficially oh. from from the final gig but the fi- do you remember that moment it feels like well, you there, there would have been more than one final gig but there is one specific uh one specific show that involved the neighbors where i felt like i wasn't really uh, i you know that feeling you're like i'm not really my, my value here isn't being fully appreciated but you, you were a part of it, but you felt you were undervalued. I was a part of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was a part of it. Do you remember what your role in that particular performance was? Probably primarily puppet gatherer. I see. More more of a stagehand than a performer. Well, I was obviously a frustrated performer. I can't remember all the details, to be honest with you, but there's been a lot. No, but at school, good. at school, I, um, I definitely... Uh, I mean, I didn't like... I, I wasn't... Until I was about 17 or 18... I didn't really like go out a huge amount mm. and I spent most of my time uh, playing music or like yourself, video games sometimes, with, yeah. you know, my little, I, I had a, quite a ragtag bunch of friends who didn't really, I thought didn't really fit into any specific group right. and I accumulated those people like, like the sediment at the center of a raindrop, you know? Yeah. And the raindrop was your sort of social dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And you guys were the sediment. We sedimented together. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so you sort of had a kind of Stranger Things-esque gang. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. I like it. Yeah. And well, it's very in vogue at the moment as well, so it makes you sound quite cool, I think. Yeah, then well, you that's are. what I'm going for. Yeah, yeah. Dave, then, you're too kind. No, to me, you are. That's the Oh, thing. David, likewise. But, so what instruments, because I know you, you can play quite a few instruments, can't you? Well, I just sort of like, I mean, if something is interest, like unusual to me, I just think, oh, I wonder what that, what that is like. So I, mm, I started out playing the cello, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful instrument. Uh, I only got to grade seven out of eight because I was lazy at rehearsing with it. Uh, practicing <laughs> is the word. Um, and then, uh, saxophone I picked up when I was like 10 or 11, basically, cause I think my mom encouraged me cause she thought it was a cool instrument and I agree mm. it is a, a cool instrument. And that came more easily to me. And I just kept up that one longer. And then accordion, a couple of years after that, a piano accordion, partly, I think, because of uh, the films of Jan Tiersen had a few accordion involved things. Also, Shockhead of Peter, uh, which was on at the Lyric Hammersmith, uh, which involved a band called the Tiger Lilies, who Mm. I became very into. And they sort of wrote the music for that. And it's three people, like a burlesque punk band who do whiteface and play accordion and the lead singer sings to them like high falsetto. That's my, that was my jam. That's yeah. I would say I can, I can uh, hear that influence in your, uh, <laughs> in your musical stylings. Um, Thanks. 
so that but that's quite that's quite a real um that's a kind of quite a full gamut of instruments that's a real gift you have do you do you find it quite easy to pick up different instruments uh first of all thanks uh do i find it easy um and not not in like a modest sense you know where people are like you know i know so many excellent musicians who are just mm. like oh you know i tinkle on the on the guitar and then they mm. pick it up and they're like eric clapton and it's like no 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 like i tinkle on the guitar you can play an instrument so i suppose like what i'm asking is even if you think oh i'm not as good as like the best people in the world what what mm. instruments would you be comfortable playing uh so I, I think there's probably a sort of selection bias in that if I was a bit good at something, I would then be like, okay, this is giving me immediate gratification. And then I mm. would become obsessed, a bit obsessive in my spare time. I'd spend like hours doing a thing or I didn't mention, I also, I played like, um, so my si- my middle sister Tamara, her boyfriend at the time was going to a guitar teacher that was into sort of heavy metal, like very technical guitar. And I mm. went to him. And so I learned very technical what they used to call, what they still call cock rock um like 80s uh sort of baroque influenced metal guitar which was yeah. just i mean i wasn't hugely i thought that music is kind of hilarious and, and brilliant it's very theatrical yeah but i learned a lot of those sort of those techniques which i um i mean i, do, I don't play that kind of guitar anymore but um i can't remember what the question was oh do i am i good at things uh some things so yeah, I like, like picked up a lot of instruments and uh, and like. That's... Well, originally, originally I wanted to. So the cello, for instance, is one of the I think one of the hardest in terms of like octaves and the fact that there's no there's like on a guitar you usually have the frets unless it's fretless, which is rare mm. to help you sort of get the intonation right. But it, it's very yeah to get really good at it you need to practice it a lot. And I just I'm just probably quite lazy. And before that I wanted to play the violin, but I was basically told I was too big and they needed more cellists in my primary school. So I was given a cello. Too big for the violin. Have Too a big, big the violin. violin. Yeah, essentially. That could be the name of my autobiography big or the first violin. chapter. Too big for the violin. Too big for the violin. Too small for the, the double bass. Yeah, it's true. In the middle. Get yourself a cello. Fully average. And so, so you, yeah, so you're kind of, at this stage, you're, you're sort of playing music and um going from uh, at school, you have a small kind of sediment group of friends. Um, yeah. And then you said you, you didn't really start kind of going out or, or kind of um, sort of experiencing things socially until you were kind of 17, 18. Um, well, so that, what, I mean, what happened more so. okay, I actually, yeah, I mean, basically, what happened is that my I was social, but with my own little sediment group of friends, the raindrop mm. friends, that mm. wasn't what we were called. But that's what we'll call them. now. That's a great name, though. raindrop friends, the raindrop gang. And uh, then at 17, I, I tell you what happened is that the the social Venn diagram expanded because that was when I sort of became friendly with Dan, the singer from the band that I then joined to the yeah. Dope and the Thief, who were a two piece. And those two knew each other since they were like six, Dan and Justin. Mm. Uh, so they were probably quite comfortable with each other certainly yeah I think initially there was resistance about me joining from Justin I think he thought like who is this guy um and I think he wouldn't mind me saying that um, well yeah because you, you know you're quite a uh an outlandish character I am outlandish I mean I'm I am a, I'm a weird guy aren't I gregarious is that a good word to describe you sort of like the, the thing is I am life. yeah so yeah I, I am gregarious but then also I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know how I don't know how how to describe myself really, but 
So, I, I mean, I bonded with Dan initially over the films of David Lynch. I don't know if you're a fan. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, equally, that would be just like, I just like the weird, the weirdness of life, you know, I like investing in that kind of world. And so we were getting into that kind of stuff. And uh, and then he was, and then he realised that I played sax, and he thought that um, him and Justin could use a different thing. So then I started gigging with them, and obviously they were much cooler than me. So I was like also exposed to a whole whole different gang at school. Cool and then musician types. Uh, yeah, I mean, not just that. Like the whole they had this whole North London gang, which was very different to my sort of my sediment, background. Raindrop. Yeah, group. it was very different to yeah. my sediment. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I'm so, you know, that was great because, uh, as you know, I continued with that band, The Joker and the Thief, um, after school, uh, up until. Yeah, so how long was Joker and the Thief running for? Because we went to a couple of your gigs. I've got some of your music. It's really good. Thanks, Dave. You know what, Dave? I was going to say, uh, it was so nice on a few occasions when I came into, like, what was like camera improvise, now Mr. Vive and I, and you'd be playing. Uh, the music and you were like just enjoying it not for my benefit that was so lovely oh well it's my pleasure i mean i always really liked it it's on a it's on a kind of playlist i've got um and uh, occasionally when i'm driving it'll just come on and i'm like oh, oh that's so nice there's my old pal josh oh playing some uh, some shredding some sax yeah occasionally shredding some sax yeah i do miss you know i was thinking i think that's something recently i mean i've been really lucky to be involved being a doctor being involved in the comedy again because uh, mm. i was missing it but then i also in the last few years have just not probably just not made the time where it's hard to make the time to do the music and i definitely miss it yeah because i suppose you're doing because we had a conversation about this didn't we about kind of um the sort of uh, practical responsibility for you as a as a medical professional versus the kind yeah. of creative part of your brain that you kind of want to explore and release a little bit um yeah but actually, I think we'll we'll come back to that. Let's circle back to um, combining those two things, and let's um, let's actually just continue to track your journey from. So you've, you're playing music, you're in a band called Joker and the Thief, and then presumably next stage is the foundation course at Lambda, where you and That's I. That's right. That's what right. Was the, so... What was your experience of of Lambda and making that move into drama school? I'm so glad I did that um, because obviously I wouldn't have met any of you guys or. Mm been part of this or it would have happened but um um yeah so my mom suggested lambda to me actually i hadn't really thought about it i i i, I it was always on the cards i was going to go to medical school my dad's a doctor my sister was a doctor um my grandfather was a doctor and i just i was like good at sciences and i found them interesting i also enjoyed like english literature and stuff though mm. uh and i didn't want to go straight into medical school because i i don't know i wanted to explore other parts of me so i applied to an art foundation um, the Wimbledon Art Foundation, and I applied to Lambda. I was so clueless, naive about drama schools that I, um, this is ridiculous in hindsight, but I didn't know that you needed, that you even needed to like have prepared a modern or, a, you know, Shakespeare or whatever. Oh, what, so like my, audition? Yeah, for the audition process. <laughs> so I, Harry Kershaw was in, uh, I told this recently on some Instagram chat thing we were doing, but yeah. uh, Harry was in the room and it was one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life because there's like 30 people in the room and um, I didn't know what, uh, you know, everyone else had their speeches prepared. Anyway, it was a miracle that I got in. Obviously they, it was a foundation. So they weren't just looking for actors, I guess. And there was, they, they saw something weird and interesting about me. Part of that yeah, foundation audition was an improv thing, which I automatically enjoyed, I should say. Yeah. I remember that actually. I remember being put with someone who 
was literally just, I was just like, we're in a boat. She was just like, nah, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm, okay, strong, strong opening. But I think well, um, now, I, I don't know, I would be better equipped to do, deal with it now. But at the time, I was like, I was furious. I was like, what are you doing? And I came out of it really angry. But now I'm just like, oh, you know, she's probably just panicking. Didn't know I don't know, do. David. It is infuriating to watch and to be a part of. I mean, it's obviously not happened to me for a long time now because I only really improvise with you guys. But, you know, especially if you're... I, I did a bit of teaching of some improv workshops back in the day. Mm. And you just feel so sorry for people that are really passionate about it. And then the scene partner just... Just like... Smug as well. Smugly just being like, no. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just killing everyone or making bad yeah. jokes. Yeah, hold on, I'm, I'm still hung up on. So hang on, right? You, your your mum is like go to Lambda, and you're like great, and then you just turn up without any speech prepared, and they're like let's let's see your speeches. What happens next? Okay, well it's a two step. That was the callback. There was two auditions for the foundation. The first mm-hmm. one I just did a um I did like a spoken <laughs> I did like an appreciation of um uh. Of Faust by Punch Drunk, which I'd seen. This is, you know, and it made a big impression on me. And I talked about various aspects of it and how interesting it was and the staging of it, etc., etc. So what, like a, a kind of like a review piece, almost? Yeah, kind of like a, like a, a yeah, exactly, like a sort of, um, like a sort of a literature review of, uh, you know, like if it was like I was doing English A level and I wanted to talk about that theatre piece. But like, and, uh, and Lambda were just like, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, that was on the list of things. I mean, this is the issue. I think on the list of things that you could do for the first edition, something like that was allowed. And then it didn't mention for the callback uh, what specifically you had to prepare. And I just didn't know. Right. I didn't, I mean, very naive, obviously. So what happened, you get into the call, so you read out your, you know, your your, your sort of essay. And then, yeah. And then you, well, you, you, they go, well, this kid is obviously excellent. Let's bring him back. Well, they must be like, who is this guy? But yeah. But then, and then so you're, in, you're in the room and do they ask for your speeches again? So, you know, in the second one, yeah, I'm in the room. I'm halfway down the line of 30, uh, you know, wannabe foundation members. Mm. And I just say, I, oh, God, that feeling when they went, and now the, and now the speeches. And they were going down and I was thinking, what am I going to say when it gets to me? I, I, honestly, what am I going to do? And um, I think I said, I was, yeah, number 15. He went, uh, so, Josh, if you, if you want to do your modern or whatever, and I went, um, I don't have anything prepared but... <laughs> because it didn't stipulate that I had to. And I just didn't know on the callback thing. But if you want, I mean, I enjoyed that improv we just did. I could do more of that if that would suffice. And the guy was like, mm, hold the phone and then we'll come back to you at the end. So they went, they went down the entire line and then came back to me at the end. And he, I can't remember which teacher it was, but he essentially auditioned. He interviewed me as if I were he asked me to be one of my grandparents, my grandfather. And as Harry is aware, I did this bizarre caricature of a sort of, I mean, it really was like <laughs> mischief movie night in sort of bizarre caricature of an old man, just a generic. Really, was, it, was it, was it full of sort of, uh, of tension? It was so tense. And I was aware, I was like, this isn't, this, I, I was thinking to myself, this doesn't correlate with any human I've ever met what I'm doing right now. And it was just like, it was just this thing of the surreal, the fact I was in it. There were 30, like, potential actors or, you know, that wanted to do this professionally looking at me, just doing this bizarre 
caricature. And I, of course they let you in. Of course they let you in because, like, if I if I would watch that, I'd be like, we got we got to get this guy in. Like, what? Well, they must. Yeah. What's he the minds be doing? must have been like, who is this guy? Why isn't he prepared a speech? Yeah. Why is he just doing this? Who, he's just doing an impression of his granddad. But then in your defense, you know, yeah. the the teacher obviously going, well, I'm going to interview you as your granddad. You t- the teacher's presumably just thinking on the feet. Do you reckon it was it yeah. at Megiddo? No, it wasn't. Mm, no, I think it was, um, oh God, I can't remember his name. He... But Adam must have seen your audition. Because like yeah, you're, Adam would have done you're Adam's kind of guy, big time, like into that kind of abstract, slightly absurd kind of fun, high energy. Like I think he would, he, yeah, he would have just been like, we got, we got to give this guy. A at that age, I was always too high energy for Adam, and I knew that. You know, it was so unattainable oh. his love. I was like, you know, and I, I hope you listened to him yesterday. Day oh, did you? Yesterday. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, we talked a lot about teaching and stuff, and he. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like a lot of people, he had that effect on a lot of people with just a lot of charisma, a lot of authority. And you're kind of trying to always, uh, yeah, he sort of ends up being a kind of father figure a little bit. And you want, yeah, yeah certainly you want the, his love. The improv guru that you need to, to exactly have the approval of. But he told um, me as well, he was like, he would, he had only just started improv by the time he'd gone into Lander. He was like, I wasn't really teaching you guys improv. I was learning it myself. So I was like, here's some stuff that I like to okay. do. That's very interesting because I mean, so but had he just been working with Ken Campbell? Yeah, because he came in, didn't he? Ken Campbell came into that. One that is an amazing experience that we had as well. Like just Ken Campbell screaming at us, no questions for three yeah. hours. Yeah, no questions. <laughs> no, no questions. Ken, <laughs> shut up. What did he make <laughs> us do? He made us do um, to what was it? To count down out loud from a hundred, and write imp- write a Shakespearean sonnet, like make one up. Oh, yeah, that rings a bell. With, like, A, B rhymes and, like, 14 syllables a line and all that kind of stuff. It was impossible. And the whole time he was like, you've stopped counting. And it was just <laughs> like, yeah, of course. What is this class? What is it? Yeah. What are we learning? But, yeah, sorry, we've been we've got sidetracked. So, so you yeah, so, I, I'm, so you got in. I'm just so pleased that you got in. And I'm just so pleased that you as, like, what, a 20-year-old? <laughs> Was just stood there with a bunch of other 18. actors, eighteen, fuck, and just being like, "Yeah, I've not got anything prepared." <laughs> but I quite, I quite like doing that. I'll do that again. Yeah, it's like that's so good. I like the idea of like it's like going into X Factor and being like, "Well, I've, I've not got a song. I didn't know I had to have a song, but I quite like queuing outside. So, do you mind if I just join the queue again?" And if I was Simon Cow, I'd be like. Yeah, we've got to let the Q guy in, even if he can't um, sing. Yeah, I mean, it was outrageous. I don't think I would have got away with that. I mean, it wasn't like a conceit that I had planned to do that. I just didn't know, by the way. But I think but, that's the thing. I think that's probably what got you in, isn't it? That real genuine, yeah. just like... Yeah. Because it's just for the whole audition process. I mean, I was definitely part of it. It's just full of people trying way too hard and people trying to like be different and be noticed and it's 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 a huge high pressure situation and, yeah. and strangely i think the more information you know yeah. the less um the less well you do and actually you going into it being like well, i don't fucking know i'm just gonna do whatever i you know the stuff that i like doing they're probably like great this guy's yeah. got something really exciting uh, the things like before that it, it was in the audition process i didn't really know that i would maybe i did but i didn't even think about it i didn't know about it that i would love 
the improv. But I love doing the improv in that audition. I was like, this is great. This, this is really sort fun. of seats me. I can just do what I want. Yeah, so, just be silly. So you, 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 you get into Lambda. Um, hmm. And then, yeah, what was your experience of, of that, of kind of performing and, and presumably then being around other people who were probably taking themselves quite seriously and wanting to kind of get onto the three-year course? I mean... Oh, well, obviously, I met you, Henry Lewis, Harry Kershaw, Mike Bodie, as, as well as other group, great people. I think we had a particularly strong year as well, didn't we? I think, like, not, uh, how many went into the three-year at Lambda? Quite a few, was actually. It was, a like, lot of it them. was like 15-odd out of about 30. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was but, quite a lot. But separate to that, I mean, maybe that's not even that informative. Just they were there were some big characters there, weren't there? And mm. um, I think it was just such a great... I mean, some, some of it, I occasionally I thought, what am I doing? That, you know, when you're when you're doing something you're just so silly just and then everyone's taking it seriously or like breathing through your ass yeah that kind of thing voice class yeah yeah breathing through your ass can i can i quickly i read i learned uh recently i've shared this with someone yesterday but i just so sorry this is a massive detour but i it's just literally this, it's is, this is a medical thing no it's a biological uh zoological thing so okay. i saw a photo of a snapping turtle with the very large underneath some ice on the on the internet with a guy like posing on top of the ice I was like, what's going on here? And apparently it's an, I mean, it's amphibians and reptiles. They hibernate and it's called brumating. I didn't, I didn't mean that's the term for it. Okay. But I was like, how's this, how's a snapping turtle alive underneath ice? And I looked it up and apparently, well, first of all, uh, turtles have a cloaca, like a bird, one hole through which they do everything, excrete and, you know, uh, have sex and lay eggs. Perfect. Second of all, they can stay, they can brumate under the ice uh, for months. And what they do is they breathe via their rectum the water comes in through the cloaca and oxygen exchanges with the rectus mucosa oh, wow. isn't that the rectum it's, like, it's like they're kind of gills they're, well they yeah. normally breathe like i assume that i think they have lungs normally uh, well they do still have them they're just not using them isn't that mad just that diffusing what they, they can just convert they can just take the oxygen out of the water through their yeah. arse yeah they're literally breathing through their arse, Dave. Sorry, that's why it met, you know, came into my head. There you go. And that's what they're trying to teach us at drama school. Yeah. Be happening. more like a snapping turtle. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to be like, oh, there's a hole in the ice and his arse was out the hole. And he was sort of bre- he's like snorkeling through the ice with his arse. That would also be impressive, to be fair. It would. And also, how would he remain there hibernating? Presumably some sort of current would shift him. But that is amazing. Wow. Sorry, I just wanted to share that and make sure that everyone knew about that that listens to this podcast. No, that's this is this is very good. A fine a fine detour. Um What were we talking so about? We were oh, yeah, so the you're in Lambda. Um yeah. lots of big characters in there and it's yeah, I was kinda of just curious about what your experience of it was because presumably like you said, you knew you were gonna to go to medical school. And so yeah. a lot of people either on the foundation course are there because they haven't got a place on the three-year course. And so they're anticipating auditioning next year for drama schools and trying to get on three-year courses, or they're there to presumably promote some kind of foray into the acting world. But if mm. you're there knowing that you're kind of exploring yourself in this, this part of you going mm. to be a doctor. Yeah. What, what was your experience of that? Did, did it, was it quite freeing? Oh yeah. I, um, I mean, I, and especially everything that we got out of it. I mean, going to Edinburgh every year during medical school was so great. I mm. mean, it was the last sort of two to three years of medical school that became very serious. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know anything. And I, I need to buckle down and do lots and lots and lots of learning. Uh, 
but we, we were still managing to, I mean, I was still managing to, to do the full Edinburgh thing. And it was those early years, Dave, as you know, that, I, I mean, those will always be deep, most, most uh, deeply held in my heart because the madness that we got up to, the stories and the images, I mean, a lot of them yeah. I've forgotten already, but we, the one, were, I mean, we were woefully underprepared. Yeah, but it was so brilliant. Yeah, and the fact that it wasn't about money and it wasn't about it was just about, and also just the and the flyering. I mean, the aggressive flyering I was doing, and some of the things that I was doing as part of flyering, it's just I don't know how I had the energy for it, or any of us did. Flyering's a tricky one because we were doing what sometimes eight nine hours a day, and doing sort of promotional gigs. Yeah, sometimes up to like ten gigs a day, sprinting across Edinburgh. Well, I accidentally got us uh, booted out from the, I mean, I've never been booted out of a shop window before, but from the shop window of one of the one of the storefronts. Do oh, yeah, was that the, the John Lewis thing? Exactly. I, I wasn't sure if I should say the name, but I, don't know. I said something fairly innocuous and uh, someone took offence, but obviously I'm improvising. That was it. So I should explain, well, actually you should explain, it's your, your podcast, you explain what happened. So you're in, we were asked to come and do like a promotional gig at John Lewis, right? Yeah, I mean, it was just because it's just like off the corner. I feel bad. I mean, maybe I shouldn't advertise that I, I don't know, apparently said something that was so inflammatory that I got us banned from a storefront. <laughs> well, I'm very pleased that you brought it up because I remember you guys, because I wasn't doing that gig. I remember you guys being behind the glass of the, the storefront. Yeah. You were speaking yeah. into mics and there was a PA system outside. On that the was right. That was right. So the, the best thing about it was watching people come past you guys improvising behind some glass and I think me potentially getting suggestions from the audience and like screaming them through the window at you guys. (laughs) And the problem was, is that as people were coming along, it wasn't clear where the voices were coming from. So people did want to stop and watch, but they were just like, where where is this? And then eventually someone would be like, it's in the window of John Lewis. And then people were like, what are John Lewis doing? Yeah. It felt especially weird that. Of all the things we did, didn't we do one on a racehorse uh, track? Yeah, yeah, we did. It was in on the outskirts of Edinburgh. We talked. Like, who's going to come from that? I mean, those people aren't going to be going to the Edinburgh Fringe anyway. I don't know. You know, it, that was the thing. We got we got driven out, didn't we? It was like twenty <laughs> miles outside of Edinburgh, and did a did a gig in like a under like a gazebo, racehorse like by the betting table. It was pissing rain, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh man, that was horrible. But I think even then I remember just like laughing and being like, what is this? Well, exactly. The whole experience was so ridiculous, but so brilliant. Well, I remember Henry Lewis kind of going um, sort of yeah. like gung-ho and just looking yeah. absolutely yeah. everything under the sun. That's the thing. Henry has just got this, something that I lack actually, which is just this this kind of can-do attitude, which is borderline delusional. But you need that in this world to get ahead and make things happen. You need someone that's just going to be like, no. I don't care how ridiculous or stupid this idea is in terms of the likelihood of it working. I mean, this whole company has basically been built on a sort of, um, it's like a, uh, what's the word? Like a sort of confidence trickster sort of pyramid scheme of of delusional hope that this could work, but it it has worked. It's a sort of of blind attack. Yeah, but I mean, just the years of of mischief doing stuff for, for little or no money. Yeah, I suppose it's probably like watching someone blindfold themselves and try and hit a baseball and they just keep swinging and eventually when they hit something, you're just like, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that they've managed to do that because they were completely blindfolded. And I sort of think that's what our journey's been a bit like. (laughs) 
But I do think that the improv has been an amazing training ground for reading an audience, getting the team that are tight and like know they're a good physically in a space, comedically, and you know get that timing together. Mm. And then, and some of the shows really do feel like the improv shows, don't they? Like if you took the highlights, in fact, some of them literally are highlights from some of the improv shows, just slightly twisted. Well, yeah, we've got quite a few stuff lifted out of um, some of the improv and, and some of the improv we've done in the devising sessions. But also I think a part of the staple for Mischief as well is just going through those really, and there are a few of them, going through those really, really low sort of shows that are just absolutely soul-shattering. <laughs> and you're kind of doing them at sort of 2 o'clock in the morning because there are so many good experiences. Yeah. It's actually the really, really bad ones where it's just like, me, you, Harry, Hen, or, you know, whatever, just doing some absolutely sad gig and sort of laughing our way through it, going, we know yeah. this is bad, but we've, we're committing to this, we're doing it. And then coming out of it and just sort of being able to laugh it off and enjoy it. And actually, there's an element of doing those gigs where you kind of go, oh, well, I know it can't really get any worse than that. So, like, what, what could I possibly be afraid of if I've got all of these people around me? And... Uh, I and we go and agree. Yeah. And all, I think just in life in general, though, I try to have the mentality of anything that's sort of uh, surreal, ridiculous, upsetting, often upsetting, or could be, you just sort of think that's one for the story bank. Like, I, this is a mm. character building moment of absurdity. Well, I think um, that's, I would, I would sort of describe your improv style as sort of unshakably playful. And I that's think um, it's... You. It's interesting because I think there's only a few times where where I've seen you either underconfident or not sure. And that only usually comes out of if you haven't been doing it for a while or there that something's happened that sort of maybe knocked you off balance. And those kind of things are very, very rare. But actually, I think I, most of the time I see you kind of. Yeah, I can see that attitude coming through, actually, where you're just kind of going, OK, I'm just going to step into this and try and make it as fun as possible. And I think that's a really wonderful attitude to have. But do you think that's a, a way that you apply yourself to the shows? Uh, so I suppose for me, recently especially, I am acutely aware that I'm incredibly lucky to have this as a sort of, um, not. I mean, this is underplaying it, but a release valve and also a whole expression of that side of me and my playfulness and my brain which I don't get to use well I say I don't get to use it at work but I am often ridiculous at work um probably shouldn't say that but I mean it's true just amongst the staff I mean I am I'm just an absurd human and I'm aware of that but mm. I try to embrace it um but if you're not having fun doing the show then what is the point and uh, and and hopefully that translate I think it does translate to for the audiences if you're vaguely into this kind of thing but just like people throwing ourselves into danger and and doing it joyfully yeah i think that is true and we should say at this point actually so we're, we're kind of coming up uh, along to this in the timeline anyway but so you are a, a fully qualified doctor um and you are a medical doctor medical doctor you work in a hospital um and uh so yeah um you, you kind of said about you you don't get to kind of use that part of your brain so much at work uh what yeah, what what is your work? Tell us a bit about what kind of um, medical medicine, because I imagine there's loads of different types of medical doctor. Yeah, so I am at the stage where, um, so I when did I finish med school? Probably six years ago now. 
So I'm at the stage where it's uh, it's just been rebranded to internal medicine training, which is what the Americans call it. Um, and I'm going to be starting my specialty um, in August. Exciting. Which, yeah. Uh, but at the moment, you still do your rotations. So, I I mean, over Christmas, while doing Mischief Eve Night, I was on a rotor in ITU. So it was especially wow. surreal coming from that. Um, I mean, some of the most tragic things I've had to deal with and see. And then going to do to be incredibly silly in Mischief Eve Night. I mean, it was a, it's a huge release. And again, I'm very grateful to have had that because I do think it's been... Um, and also the summer tour we did when the prevalence was low um, of SARS-CoV-2 in September, when we you know went around, mm. that was the so needed tour. for me personally. And how comfortable are you talking about um, what's happening in the hospital, uh, particularly over those more stressful times? Um, yeah, I, just, I don't want to bum people out there listening to this. Maybe they want a bit of escapism, but I will happily talk about it. I think um, obviously it's been a crazy time. I think it's important um, to kind of speak to someone kind of about because uh, you you hear so much on social media and there's there's a lot of misinformation but also um, a lot of opinion I think as well and I'm, you know I'm, obviously you're going to give your opinion but I think if you're actually on the ward treating the patients mm. um, that's that's an invaluable insight particularly for someone like me who who is just seeing this play out on TV essentially like I'm very fortunate that I don't I know less than five people who have actually got COVID. I don't know anyone who's passed away from it. Mm. Um, so it would be really easy for someone like me to be like, oh, well, it's not that bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, yeah. it's all right, isn't it? And I'm sort of having to trust yeah. the people that I know. So what's been your experience of it, particularly in the last sort of few months? The lot of our over, over when uh, this Christmas just gone was especially bad. Um, mm. my, uh, in my hospital, my hospital was compared to sort of London hospitals in March wasn't as bad, uh, wasn't as badly hit, but it was still hit. Um, obviously, being an ITU, you see the people that are um, more likely to uh, survive if they're requiring ventilation. So that's why they're there. So there were young people in their 30s and 40s who were otherwise well. Yeah. And every day is part of your, I think the difficulty because it's you to as part of self preservation, you sort of turn off a part of your brain so that you can do the job like you know turning patients over um, which is part of the like treatment for covid sometimes when the ventilation pressures are going up or um is that to help but, them uh, breathe yeah it's to do with um it, it's to do with like the blood going to the affected part of the lung right. um and um the mo the most difficult part i think for me at least was having to call or see in person the next of kin of those people, like the, the, the children or the, the brother or the sister or whoever of the people that were, <clears throat> you, you know, deteriorating. Mm. Um, and that's not just an ITU, that would be on the wards as well, but that was just my experience most recently. Um, yeah. And is it your job in, in that scenario to kind of um, tell them that it that the prognosis isn't good uh, and that it looked like it's a bit of a, a one-way journey at the moment? Yeah, it's very, I mean, it would always be, I hate prognosticating to, in general, because I don't think, um, I think that it's often very, very difficult. And um, you break uh, sort of trust between you and either a patient if they're awake or the next of kin, if you say something with confidence and it doesn't happen. Um, right. So I think it's important, you know, that we, I think this, this pandemic has been a good exercise in understanding the sort of how risk works and like probability it's not it's, nothing's definite it's, it's it's sort of a range of of certainty um mm. i'm trying to translate that in a sort of 
I mean, it's really hard. I mean, when you tell someone that their mum is possibly not going to recover, um, yeah. it's, especially over the phone. And yeah, it's, it's a bizarre experience, especially, and also you're doing it day after day with the same people. So you're like building up a sort of weird relationship and, um, and yet, you know, and then when you see the faces of families, when they come in, um, towards, we were only letting people in, sorry, this is so depressing potentially. I don't yeah, know if people want to. It's good. Okay. I, I, I think I'm very interested by it personally. If no one else um, wants to, to it, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that actually seeing, being confronted with the faces of the next of kin that came in, that, that only allowed to come in because of COVID restrictions towards the end of life for the patients, um, mm. it really hits home. And it's almost like too much to process. Or for uh, you personally so, or for the families? Uh, both. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. And so, um, do you have a? Um, is there a part of you that you worry that would become almost insensitive uh, to these kind of things? Because, like you say, you kind of have to turn a part of yourself off, um, and eventually, like if if enough, I guess if enough patients deteriorate or enough patients pass away, does it feel like they become statistics, or do they, or do you kind of just each one feel like a new kind of blow to the sort of, sort of your morale? So I think that, um, so first of all, actually, we discussed this, uh, the ICU team discussed this, and I've discussed with the doctors this before, this sort of um, professional, emotional, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And uh, you have to develop a hardening so that you can um, not become emotionally invested with each person at the same time in order to empathise. Yeah, you need, you need something there to prevent yourself from feeling every hit because you just couldn't do your job. Mm. Um, so it is essential to have a sort of fader switch on your empathy. Uh, and sometimes that's impossible, uh, because you're, you know, in order to talk to another human being and really connect with them, that is, that is empathy. Uh, mm. but then for the rest of the time you're doing the, the functional part of the job and you can't just be wallowing in the misery of the situation. Otherwise you wouldn't get anything done. So it is, yep. it's like a skill to sort of, uh, switch in and out of that. And sometimes that armor breaks and um i heard a story ages ago about this this is pre-covid but uh, a consultant who only spoke german with her um family and um i think she's you know she's this is in england so she would consult in, in english and medicines in english but she they needed someone to translate for an elderly patient who only spoke in german mm. and as soon as she was there translating from german to english um just the fact that she was doing that she accessed a different part an emotional part of her brain and just started weeping because uh, she was talking about end of life decisions with this elderly sure. German woman, and I think that's like a it's it's one single example, but it's a good, I think good uh, how I see it, uh, this sort of compartmentalization. Um, but we're it's all an human. element of conditioning to it, where you you kind of aware yeah. that you kind of have to change your mental map a little bit in order to kind of cope with the the trauma of everyday yeah. decisions. You, you definitely slip into a role which you. Like uh, like me in work, I slip into a doctor role because uh, you have to, especially when I mean I'm sort of I'm sort of now I'm occupying maybe more of it because I'm talking about it. Um, yeah. You know that that uh, I mean I, obviously I need to I couldn't just be Josh the improviser at work I probably wouldn't fly. But um, what I was going to say is there like an element is there a, a sort of Patch Adams element to your? Uh, I would say your... yeah. I it, it, so part of being a I think a good doctor. I'm not saying I'm a good doctor, although I hope I am. Um, is that you immediately try to read a patient on what you think they need and want in that moment. 
And I would say that I, uh, towards a sort of more colloquial, cheeky, charming, sort of jokey kind of side um, with colleagues and with patients. And if they respond well, then great. Uh, some people are not are not in the right place for that, and I respect that. But so, uh, yeah, it some makes people want a more of a, a, a cold professional approach. Well, yeah, they just want. Well, obviously, it's not appropriate sometimes if someone's in a really dark place. But sometimes you just need you need to know that you're being looked after by humans. I think I'd want a human looking after me. Yeah, um, I think it's quite easy to. Um, I'm finding that a lot uh, as COVID tolerance wanes that that there there is a tendency now to start seeing um particularly doctors and and sometimes policemen and and basically public sector workers start we're, i think we're starting to dehumanize them sometimes mm-hmm. and i think it's it's a really dangerous thing there are there are lots of people obviously still that are showing huge support but i think yeah it must be quite hard for you when you're you're in a position where you're like well i have all this knowledge and all this skill but i am still a person Mm. it must be kind and, of a strange environment to be in and there's something else that you were saying about um about the sort of emotional content of of what you see i think it in terms of what i've seen uh some people's opinions and the fact that some people are in denial about well even that covid exists or um seemingly take riskier and riskier um behaviors mm. um in terms of you know at the height of the when the prevalence was at its highest over over winter whatever I think that, that if there's not an emotion, I think this is a human trait generally, if there's not an, an emotional connection to seeing the reality of it, if it's just a number, then it, it's very hard to sort of have that have meaning. But if you have an interaction with a, a single uh, person that, that's dying of COVID, then it suddenly takes on a whole different narrative. And if you could just see the human story behind the people that are affected, um, I think for me personally, you know, that's... Um, that would be enough to change my behaviors. And you're right. I think if people, yeah. especially, you know, if there's, cause it's true that younger people, thankfully younger people aren't uh, as at risk and thank goodness for vaccination uh, coming in as quickly as it has. I didn't think it would come in as quickly as it did here. Mm. Um, You're doing very well. So is that, yeah. is that kind of what you would say to the, 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 the skeptics or the deniers or the people whose behavior is adapting is, is encourage them to look past the statistics. It's not just, you know, 120, 130,000 people dead. It's it's like each one of them is a living person who now no longer lives. Well, I mean, but equally me saying that, I don't I don't know if that would be enough or sufficient because unless you've actually seen it, I, that's mm. why I think it was good. It was very late in the day, um, I think, because they didn't want to upset people or whatever, but the decision for media crews to go in and film on uh, intensive care units or general medical wards, uh, mm. the COVID general medical wards, which are mostly, thankfully, not needed at the moment um, as prevalence goes down. It's very hard unless you see those images um, to sort of to take it on board. I, I, you know, I don't think any human saying, but you should X, Y and Z um, or this is the situation. Although I can I can tell you from my own personal experience it is horrific and it is not, uh, you know, it's not it's not pleasant at all for, for anyone involved. And and also just the all the sadness around it. I mean, not just the not just the patient, just that, you know, the families and the, all the other people affected and not being able to come to hospital and, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah, it kind of has a has a ripple effect further out than just you and the patient. It's sort of there's more stuff around it, I guess, that people probably don't take into consideration when they're looking at those statistics or making choices mm. about what they should be doing with their day. Um, but well, thank you very much for talking about that. I imagine it's not it's not easy, and it's it's really um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear as well because there are so many people who aren't on the front line and mm. um, having a direct source of information. What a, what a privilege. 
and you know exclusive here dave hearn podcast <laughs> mischief makers you know it's yeah, going to be, be number one news news story <laughs> Um, so let's let's actually uh, now we're we're sort of coming into the final ten minutes or so. Um, oh no, Dave. And let's explore some questions from the web. So I'm, what I'm doing here brilliantly is I've brought us down uh, emotionally to quite a quite a, um, a somber place, and I'm now yeah. going to rely on you to, to lift us back out of that to bring it back with, up um, with a new jingle for okay. um, uh, questions from the web. Is your title? Questions from the web. Nice. It was sort of falsetto, lovely vibrato. Very, very yeah, I, nice. I was trying to channel the body form commercial from the early 90s. But yes. in a sort of more subtle, the sort of orchestral version. Yeah, yeah, I could hear that. I could hear that. Great, great. And you did well with, with only one instrument. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so um, much. So, Let's have a look. So, well, yeah, we're keeping on the medical theme. Uh, this is mm. from Sophie. She asks, uh, "Have you ever had a patient recognise you from a mischief show?" I don't think so, unless is, they. Is that a good thing? I think it would be quite bizarre <laughs> to uh, to recognise me if I were, if you were my patient as this like ridiculous cartoon man. Well, you probably wouldn't make the connection, would you? You probably wouldn't be like... That's it, I think you're right. I, I think... can't be a doctor. Yeah. Well, I get that a lot anyway, Dave, to be honest. That's true. Um... I mean, if I saw the papal enforcer walk into <laughs> my room, I wouldn't be like... I should say, for those of you who did watch it, Josh played a character called the papal enforcer, which was a... It was a madness, a joyous madness. Mm. But, yeah, if the papal enforcer walked in and was just like, I am Dr. Elliot, I'm here to uh, <laughs> ask you, I would be like... You, you can't be the papal enforcer. You're, you're just, you're, you're a doctor. That's the silliness. So I suppose it might be a, a sort of plausible deniability in a way. Yeah, and I do think that there's a lot of how our brains work that require contextualization. And you know, why would, why would I be there? That's true. That is very true. Well, there you go, Sophie. The answer is probably not. And if hopefully not, hopefully never. Yeah. Let's hope not. Well, again, this. Let's stick with this as well. So Kerry asks. Um, We've kind of touched on this already, but do you find uh, do you find you need comedy as a relief from your job, uh, or do you manage to switch off easily because you love doing the show so much? Um, I think short term, there's a bit of I have to switch off quickly, but then I think it has long term repercussions. And yes, definitely at work, just generally, like I mean, not when with patients, but I I think comedy is very important for like team rapport for me. And, you know, again, I, much like with Mischief, I think you sh we should try and have a, as good a time as possible, wherever, whatever we're doing, and enjoy life as much as possible. So, yes, definitely. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Well, there you go, Kerry. You heard it here first. Um, next up, this one is from, uh, from Sarah. Uh, she asks, what did you find most different and most challenging about performing in the live stream compared to when it was in person last year? Um, well, initially, obviously, the I joined after the, I think you guys had done a couple of shows already <clears throat> on the Mystery Even Night Inn. Uh, so at least it felt like someone knew what they were doing by that point. You know what I mean? But um, we, we knew that the, the feeling of it was uh, yeah. intense. Yeah. I think early days before uh, just getting used to someone hitting a button to mix live pre recorded laughter from our previous stage shows was quite surreal. 
Mm. Um, but and often made me laugh quite a lot in the middle of a scene, just like that. That just fake feedback. Yeah, someone uh, else, it's just like, how funny is Simon finding it? Because he's yeah. just pressing a button to make <laughs> laugh. <noises. laughs> yeah, it did feel a bit like a Black Mirror scene or something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I felt quite. Na- I mean, basically, I think it ended up being quite a sort of like a fun, um, high stakes rehearsal. You know, when you're, you know, just having a nice time amongst us before a show like the day yeah. before and we, we, we haven't done it for a while we're getting back on our feet so there's that slight slight pressure to be good um, yeah 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 and it, you, you're not getting the feedback from the audience so always in rehearsals it felt really bad um yeah and we're yeah. just trying to get used to that with no audience but equally then it just gives you carte blanche to just go in full i mean if you're going to do something do it with commitment because you yeah. don't know either way yeah, it could, be be it could not be, but you're not yeah. going to know. So, you know, yeah. you treat both imposters the same. Yeah. Very good. Um, I wouldn't actually usually ask this question. This one is from Liz, because um, it's a bit of a tough one to put people on the spot, but I feel like oh, you, you would be good at this. It's just, it's quite simple. It's what is your favourite random fact that you know? Oh, well, I shared one earlier about, um, about butt the... breathing. Yeah. Me I mean, if I've you've got, got another one, we can, we can use the arse breathing as your... Uh, I mean, that's just the recent one. I've, I've got so many. I, I love random facts. That's the thing. But is that, um, would you say that's one of your favourites, the arse, arse term? Well, well that, that one's come into my life in the last couple of days. So it's mm. right it's right, right. Uh, there the, the front of the prefrontal cortex, you know. Um, mm. Can I think about that one as we talk and maybe you I'll... Can. I'll... You can. We'll okay. circle back. I'll um, let So uh, Alex asks, well, Alex states initially, absolutely stand out in Mischief Movie Night. Now, I assume, Alex. I assume Alex is talking For a positive way. Mm. Yeah, hopefully. Alex might very well be talking about me. Who knows? Or he might be saying, you were really subpar, Josh. Like, you really. really stood out. Like a sore, really, unpleasant. Um, yeah, a really lacklustre performance. Um, hopefully not. But this is Alex's question. How do you balance the chaos and, and hilarity in your improv so it's not too over the top, but it's genuinely funny and spontaneous? Is it something you are actively aware of, or is it just instinct? I didn't mean to ask that so sarcastically, Alex. That's a very good question. <laughs> I apologise. I, I feel like quite a cynical tone. I feel like you've yeah automatically questioned the validity of the underlying assumptions yeah. in that question. Yes, but, who 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 are you, Alex, to say these things? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, uh, how do you imbalance you know the chaos and the hilarity? <laughs> making it genuinely funny but it's a very good question because i would say i would say you you like to describe someone's performance as quite chaotic is is quite a negative thing but i would say you managed to balance it really really well there's there's a joyous chaos and but it is it is funny and it does feel really spontaneous do you think it's something i guess what yeah alex is asking is it something that you actively pursue that or is it just part of your instinct you just get in there and do whatever I think that uh, when I was 18, 19, 20, I would, um, I, I would have too much of a sort of giving motor mouth, you know? Um, mm. So in recent years, I've tried to be like that coiled perfect spring of being ready to come in with a madness that is just whirring constantly up there, but then having the discipline to, to stop after short bursts. I mean, you feel it in the room, don't you? It's funny about that because, again, without an audience, you know, you would have thought the audience would be integral to feeling that energy. But just amongst us, you know, when 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 there's a short little moment for you to nip in with something and then get out. 
Ken Campbell used to say, what did he used to say about uh, be fun, get on, be funny, and F off? David? Oh, David, are you muted? Oh, I was, I was just talking there, but what I did was I had myself on mute. I'm so sorry um, for you. No, it was me. Uh, you, you missed some absolute gold. Um, tell me, tell me. Well, I actually knocked something over, so it's quite good that it was on mute. Um, so I'm quite glad. But yeah, it was be fast, be funny, and fuck off. And it was it. applying that to all forms of theatre, even if it's like straight theatre and, you know, serious pieces. Uh, I think just I in life, that. you know, just storytelling and interactions with people. Just give the nuggets of truth and go away. And also in medical handovers. Don't give the background stuff you don't need to hear. Just give the, the salience. Give the salience. Get the fuck out of there. Be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully drop in a, a blinder of a joke and then go away. I suppose a, is, a, is a medical equivalent of a mic drop just dropping the little clipboard with all the information on it? Clipboard. Only uh, F1s. First year doctors. I mean, that would be the... I say only. That's not fair. A dear friend of mine. Uh, who is a registrar, um, still has a clipboard because she's a very organised woman. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, typically the, the um, what's the word? The stereotype would be that you, your first-year doctors still have clipboards because they are the ones that are doing all the painful admin. Mm. But I do feel sorry for medical students about to start F1. It is, it is like a hazing to join a, a club. Of, a lot of admin. Uh, but it's not just admin because you also do the uncalls and you i mean some of the most scary moments of my medical career to date have been during my first year of medicine partly maybe because i knew less but also partly because it is just hard yeah you got really. you got it's a bit of a bit of a trial by fire yeah yeah um well we are rapidly running out of time oh goodness um, dave we're only just getting into the good stuff we are now the final the final uh section which we're gonna have to literally do in like a minute Okay. It, it, luckily, it's called the quick fire section. Um, so give us uh, give us a quick fire jingle. Put them up, cowboy. <laughs> I heard you laughing as you said, cowboy. <laughs> Put them up, cowboy. And also, um, it's it's okay that you didn't say quick fire, but I quite like the idea of. I suppose if I was like, this is the quick fire round. Put them up, cowboy. That'll be good. Okay, it? I'll put it on at the end, and then you can use that for all future jingles because I think that this is genuinely good. Okay, yeah, we can do this. Okay, ready? Um, okay, here we go. We're ready for the. So yeah, you can do. So yeah, do your jingle. I'm going to introduce it. You do your jingle. Ready? So this is, ladies and gentlemen, the quick fire round. Put him up, cowboy. <laughs> quick fire. Nice. Very nice. Okay, here we go. I'm going to just ask you a bunch of questions. First thing that comes into your head. Are you ready? Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. What is your favourite colour? Uh, turquoise. It's not true. <laughs> Texting or talking? Talking. If you were an animal, what would you be? Llama. If you could describe yourself as a dessert, what would you be? Uh, chocolate cheesecake. <laughs> if, uh, if you were one of the 52 playing cards, which one would you be? Jigger! No, too boring. Um, uh, Jack of hearts. Uh, is a Jaff cake a cake or a biscuit? It is most definitely a cake. Uh, describe yourself in three words. Joshua motherfucking Elliot. <laughs> nice. What is in your pockets right now? Literally nothing but air. And finally, who from Mischief would you want to be trapped on a desert island with? Oh, dear. I, I can't answer that. 
That's that's, and you can't say so. Making me either. choose between my children. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I've always said Mike Bodie. <laughs> but anyway, from a practical point of view, yeah, he would he, before you'd even got on the island, he would have already built a, a five star shack and yeah. have coconut martinis. Is that a thing? Yeah. Waiting. Well, it is now. He's like, I wouldn't drink that martini though, because you know, if Bogues <laughs> has invented it, it's gonna, there's gonna be something. There's gonna be guaranteed food poisoning, but yeah, it'll 100%. be delicious. Hundred percent. You know what they say: um, moment on the lips, lifetime in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> lifetime dead in the grave after drinking a toxic martini. Um, and finally, before we wrap it up, have you got any? Um, any sort of media recommendations for people in TV, books, podcasts, anything you want to uh, you want to push, music, mm. anything people should listen to, read, watch, experience? Uh, well, check out my band that I mentioned, even though we're not playing currently, but maybe one day, The Joker and the Thief. Um, check out uh, the last book. This, I mean, I really enjoyed it because it's written like poetry. Uh, is the um, my friend gave it to me to read. There's a series of books by Carlo Rivelli, who's a theoretical physicist, and they basically, a bunch of them are uh, on the same thing about gravity and Einstein's theorems and and, and more and the nature of time. And uh, there are different, so there are different like levels of hardness, but I really enjoyed reading them. Um, yeah, Carlo Rivelli. Very good. Sounds good. Well, wonderful. Thank, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Josh Elliott, oh, thank you very much for Thank talking. you for listening, and thank you for having me on, Dave. It's been absolutely wonderful. Um, do keep an eye out for all of our episodes. Uh, you can follow Josh on Twitter. I should have your Twitter handle up here, actually. Let me see if I can find it. Do you know what yours is? It's at Dr. Dr. Joshua Elliott. Two L's, two T's. There you go. Follow him Follow him on Twitter for all the latest medical bants. And, bants, um, bants, bants, bants! That was like a siren. That was very good, and uh, you can give us a give us a kind of uh, the the sort of catchphrases. Keep making mischief. Do you want to give us a keep making mischief? Either like a jingle or like a I don't know. Okay. Like a, yeah, you you know. Woo! Keep making mischief. <laughs> Perfect. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.